All right. Well, good morning, everyone. All right. Ooh, that was a good one. Who's that? Woohoo! Thank you, sister. All right. I like that. I like that. Well, great. I'm glad that you guys are excited and pumped up on a rainy, rainy, rainy morning. I just turned around after our 9 a.m. and it was rainy. So um, just wanted to uh, give a shout out for that. Um, so these last couple of weeks, we were talking about all hands on deck. We've been working through the book of Romans uh, chapter 12. And we're finishing up in the last part of this, of this particular chapter, and we have a passage. And this passage is, is going to generate kind of an understanding as we look through the first two weeks about motivation for participation and then distribution for contribution. Now we're walking into the passage that would start with verse 9 with the word love. Can buy me love, love. Remember that song? Well, maybe you haven't, but it's an old love song, and we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about love and the understanding of what it really means to be a person who truly understands love. And we look at the world we have grown up. I remember just growing up some years past where, you know, we would look on the top 40. There'd be the pop hits and the love songs that were out there. And back then, you know, love songs were like popcorn love songs, bubblegum machine kind of love songs. I mean, there were just really sweet love songs where it would describe a love between a husband and a wife and a marriage. And, and you know, all even back in the Motown days, even through the 70s. And then if you looked at the 70s, Barry Manilow came along and just made everybody want to feel like they were in love, and Lionel Richie too, and you would have all these particular love songs of years past. And so I decided, you know what, since we're going to be talking a little bit about love this week, I thought, let me just kind of Google and see what kind of songs are out there that have the word love in it or the title. So I'm going to, I've asked my friend over here, Eric, to come and join me. We're going to have some fun, little fun with singing just a couple of songs. But as I looked at that list, I noticed that there was a list of the rankings of which are the most popular songs for the word love in it. And I'll tell you what number one was. In fact, Dennis isn't here, but it's one of probably his favorite groups out there. But uh, the third one on the lift list was, you know, all you need is love. Bam, 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 bam. All you need is love. All right. So you would sing that song, and in the '60s, everybody thought that's all you need is love. Right? They didn't know what kind of love it was. Could have been a conditional love or unconditional love, but they just kind of said love. And then another one on that list was. Um, you got to help me out. It was number six, but let me, just, let me just sing it real quick. Wise man says, only fools rushing, but I can't. Come on, help me out. Love, falling in love with, with you. Then the next part. Take my hand, take my whole life too, but I can't help Falling in love with you. That's one of my, my wife's favorite songs. Okay. Now it says, you know, I want to know what love is. They were looking for a definition on that. And then there was the one that I really love, Air Supply. I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. And then I would just sit there and we had the big old 78 on there. And I'm singing back and forth so excited. But all of these kinds of love songs, but the one that was even one of all of our favorites, I hope, was that love, there's only you, 
in my life. The only thing that's right. Okay, so, but then there's other modern love songs that I'm kind of out of. It's a, so Eric's going to help me out. So he don't know about... Uh, Got me looking so crazy in love, you love. Got me looking so crazy in love. I know that one. Y'all know about that? All right, okay. Uh -uh. All right. Some, so don't act like y'all don't listen to Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, um, um, cause all of me loves all of you. All your curves and all your edges. Yes, okay. All right, okay, that's good. <laughs> but of all of these, now we got one more? Yeah, I got some more. Okay, How many you want? One more, one more. Let me see, let me see, let me see. I'll love you till your hair turns gray. And I'll still love you if you gain a little weight. All right, yeah. okay. Okay. For all the husbands and wives out there, you know that that demonstrates unconditional love. So we love that. Well, give a hand for Mr. Eric over here. All right. We're having some fun this morning because we want to make you laugh just a little bit because we're talking about a very serious subject here. Now, when we look at these love songs, and when I was growing up, and we, we, we have this kind of philosophical theory and understanding that when we've been embedded in our culture, that love is conditional, we start to wonder if when we enter into our relationship with God, is that kind of how we transfer that? When we're looking at all of our culture with this conditional love, the difference with God is this unconditional love is so far different from conditional love. As we're embedded in our culture and our mindsets, as is the subliminal message that we hear within any kind of song or any kind of commercial or any kind of show, it starts to transform us in ways we don't even realize. And interesting enough that when you're looking at the first part of Romans chapter 12, you see that don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed the renewing of your mind, that some of that can play in on all of this. So we're having some fun playing all these love songs, but sometimes those songs could be embedded in us. See, conditional love, as many of us know, is a love that is earned. It's on the basis of a conscious or unconscious conditions met by the lover. Loving is primary. Conditional love requires some kind of finite exchange. Where the difference with unconditional love is that the basis of the love is unlimited nature without conditions. Within the confines of unconditional love, there is a pact between two parties with one of the two parties that has established the conditions necessary to make it an unconditional covenant of love. See, unconditional love is established only by God. We as his people who have received this love through the person and work of Jesus Christ can only really truly display this unconditional love when it's done through the power of the Holy Spirit, when we're surrendered and allowing God to do his work in an empty vessel. So when we're looking at it, we're understanding that unconditional love can be best displayed in a marriage context. But how are we doing with our marriages in the Christian context? Slowly struggling and falling apart. How many stories have I heard just in recent weeks when I've heard of so many of my friends are falling aside in their marriages? Some are getting divorced who are Christians. They're struggling with understanding what is true unconditional love. I looked up an article from Christian Christianity Today, and it says, Five signs your marriage is headed for trouble. 
And I'll just give you two of those. But the first one is you don't desire to serve your spouse or put them first. Now, I will be the first one to admit that I'm probably first in line to fail in this area. I don't say that to be pious. It's because it's true. Just go ask my wife. And because why? Because the idea is that unconditional love is something in which we have to work towards every day of our lives, dying and surrendering to God, who is the one who distributes and disperses this unconditional love. But what happens in the marriage context is what we start to do is take each other for granted and thinking, why do I need to serve my wife or my husband? Because they know I love them. But is the purpose of it to say, or, you know, that they love me or not, I should always strive to serve them first. The Bible makes that clear. In Ephesians 5, I am to love my wife as Christ loves the church. It starts with me. But here's the key. Sometimes we don't like the way we're being treated. And so we just say, well, I don't know if I really want to respond in love because I'm tired of being mistreated. But that's the actual aspect of unconditional love is when you are mistreated, you're supposed to respond with a con- unconditional love. That's what God calls each of us to. And as we look at that and understand whether they deserve it or not, we're called to that. And then number five, I just want to read. That was, that was number one. But number five goes down a little bit further and says this. You're no longer making regular, intentional investments in your marriage. And we tend to do that. When we get too many years in our marriage, we start to take all things for granted. We're not intentional about loving our spouses as we should. And that's for both. And that's what ends up happening so often with the love concept is because love is something God's called each and every one to us, an unconditional love, not only in a marriage context, but in the body of Christ. And as we look at the book of Romans again, chapter 12, we know that in the first 11 chapters, we've discussed this in the last two weeks, is that love is is permeated in the first 11 chapters. We know because God's love has been offered to us through his son, Jesus Christ. We see grace, we see mercy, we see righteousness, we see sin, but we see justification and sanctification and glorification in Israel and Gentiles, which you have to understand that they're called to love one another, but in that context, they're actually enemies of one another. And so as we look at this whole concept concept and this truth, it's like the first 11 chapters are proper theology, but the second part of this book, 12 through 16, is practical theology. And now we're going to talk about how to practically place in our lives unconditional love. I don't know about you, but it's a love is an emotion, but it's also devotion. Love is a devotion. It's a commitment every day to say, I am willing to do whatever possible to bring forth the love of Jesus Christ. So when we're looking at this passage, Romans 12, 9 through 21, there is a similar tone and language in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, we just came off of last week talking about gifts, 3 through 8. Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, at the latter part, especially of that chapter 12, or chapter 12, the last part of the verses are talking about gifts. So there's a similar tone, a similar structure that goes into this passage, 9 through 21 in Romans, and 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. And so people would go and they would be immersed with this love chapter. Every pastor minister that is displayed or performing a wedding, they always go to this passage. But this passage is not within a merited, marital context. It is the love of God, the unconditional love of God that is displayed, that God has given to us who are his people. 
So we're to have this love with the gifts in which we use. So if we have gifts and they've been distributed to us, now how do we bring forth in the practice? And so in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, we see that there are mentions of this. What is love? It's patient. It's kind. It's not envious, not bragging, not puffed up, not self-serving, not rude, not easily angered or resentful, not glad about injustice. Watch that now, even our society but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So as we think about love as a devotion, and God has given us this love that we may demonstrate that to one another in the body of Christ, even in our marital context, and we have to think about, too, how does that expand outside of the body of Christ? Because we know in the book of John, and John often said it, that they'll know we are his disciples if we have love for one another. Who are those? Those outside of our context here in the body of Christ. So we have to demonstrate this love. So how do we demonstrate this love? Well, I really believe there are a couple things here in this particular passage. We need to demonstrate the love of Christ by being what? First, dedicated, not disloyal. Dedicated, not disloyal. Just look with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and it starts. Now, in this passage, we're going to see, just in these four four or five verses, 13 exhortations. I said, wow. And they're tough. Love is devotion, but love hurts. And this unconditional love is not natural. It's supernatural. So we have to look at it and say, there are 13 exhortations existing of love for Christians all the way to the hospitality for strangers. And the word hospitality means to care for those who are far away from God, the word of strangers. So we look at the word love, and we see it right here in this passage. It says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And so love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast, fast to what is good. So look at verse 9, and we know that love is the agape love, unconditional love, and it's to be sincere without hypocrisy, without deception. John Calvin, the scholar of years past in the 15th, 14th, 15th century, said this. He said, it is difficult to express how ingenuous almost all men are in counterfeiting a love which they do not really possess. So when we think about conditional love and the love songs, they really don't understand what God and who he is and his love that we, too, as his people, have to embrace and possess. So as we possess this love that God has given to us, he goes on to say this, hate what is evil. Of course, an exhortation and a command, hate what is evil. The word hate means to be vehemently dislike something, hate strongly, even in the word abhor. And evil means anything and everything contrary to God. So let me ask you a couple of questions here. Do you hate or do we hate sexual immorality? You could say yes if you'd like to. Do we hate adultery? Do we hate abortion? Well, that's real resounding. Yeah. Do we hate idol worship? I believe you would all be saying that, and some may not even be saying out loud right now. But let me ask you a couple more questions. Do we hate pride? Do we hate gossip? Do we hate slander? Do we hate jealousy? Do we hate anger? Do we hate apathy? 
So this is not to, as I make this statement, I'm not trying to be legalistic. But what are we watching? And what are we listening to? If we hate these things. I say this not in a legalistic way because I have to reevaluate my own life. If we really truly hate these things as God has commanded through his servant for us to hate them, what are we listening to? What are we watching that shows us that we really don't hate these things? I mean, if you think about it, he says, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast means to be closely associated with, cling to, attached to. And good means to that which is beneficial or helpful. So there it goes, another valuation. Am I clingly coming close to, am I clinging to, attaching to that which is beneficial for me and all those around me? See, what Paul is trying to say is these exhortations is that in order for you and I, if we're not hating what is evil, then it's very difficult to cling and attach and associate to that which is good. We can't have one or the other. We need to choose either evil or good. Amen? Amen. Amen. So the question is, which one are we choosing? And that is an evaluation between us and God. We have to look at our lives, but not only individually, but corporately, because, you know, we understand one bad apple just spoils a whole bunch of them. And in the, in the context of the body of Christ, that could, we see that in the scriptures in Joshua 7, where Achan and the sin, it can create such a place where the body of Christ can suffer. But it also says if one suffers, we suffer with them. And if they rejoice, we rejoice with them. We weep with those who weep. So in understanding this too, I love what this commentary says. This scholar says he's unfortunately familiarity with a culture that is shaped in the forces of Satan have lulled too many believers in the state of general tolerance for whatever deviant behavior is in vogue at present. We are to abhor evil because it is the enemy of all that leads to Christ's likeness. It is worthy mentioning that all 10 participles here in this passage right here, beginning with this clause, are present continuous, meaning that we have to continually work at this. It's progressive sanctification. That's why I said it's not legalism, but it's the idea of working toward to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. See, what God seeks in the believer is not as much a single worthy act as it is continual, continuing quality of life. That's what brings us to a continuing quality of life. When we hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And now verse 10, it says, love one another with brotherly affection. That word brotherly is Philadelphia. Can I hear, get my people saved from Philadelphia? What, what? There's only two of you here. Okay. All right. But the idea is that Philadelphia is supposed to be a brotherly love. It's a word that says affection. And we know we can't find that kind of love anywhere, especially in any kind of city. Because ultimately, it doesn't come through conditional love. It comes from God and through his son, Jesus. And so this brotherly love and this affectionate love, the word affection is meaning devoted. In the Greek, one who's devoted to a love, even if it's saying that one person who's willing to seek the best for the other person, it's seeking for them beside themselves, before themselves. 
And that's why it goes on and says with the outdo, it says outdo one another in showing honor, which means the word outdo, or in another, in another version, it says give preference in NASAB, but also in the NET, it says showing eagerness. So outdo means to consider better, more as highly esteemed. So when you're outdoing someone, you're putting someone else before yourself. So what he's saying is that give preference to someone. Now you guys are fighting over who gets the honor. You're not fighting over, I want to get the honor. I'm fighting for someone else to get the honor. Wouldn't that be wonderful to see in the context of the body of Christ that we want other people to get the honor before ourselves? And by doing so, the word actually means, it's a leadership term word that says, I will go first in allowing you to get the honor. So it is I who will lead by example to give you honor to put you before me. That's what that word, that leadership term means. It's because we've said even as leaders here in our church that we won't ask anything of you what we're not first doing ourselves. Because by doing so, we're leading by example because our chief shepherd, the one who oversees all of our souls, is the one who's led by example by dying on the cross for sin who took on mankind and their sin. So, we, so he goes on to say that we have this brotherly love um, to outdo one another. Do not be slothful in zeal. Now, this has nothing to do with your personality, but not to be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit in serving the Lord. Again, that servant, that wanting to go out and serve. But fervent in spirit means to be stirred up emotionally, to be enthusiastic, excited, on fire. That means that when you're, the love of God has so permeated your life that you can't be less than excited. It may be expressed differently, but your life shows forth the excitement of hating what is evil and clinging on to what is good. And so this idea of stirring it up, being fervent in spirit... Paul is just saying it's called to because what, what slothful means is to don't lag, don't hold back, hesitation, reluctance. It gives the idea of just being disloyal. You don't care. You're not putting it up front. You're just being disloyal to God. So it's dedicated, devoted, committed to God, not disloyal. And then he goes on. He says, rejoice. Rejoice in the hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs and saints and seek to show hospitality. That word rejoice, he's not saying to rejoice in the now, to rejoice in what we're going through, to rejoice in the struggle. But he's saying that the actual word is leaning toward hope in the future. So when he's saying rejoice, he's saying to have your confident trust in the expectancy of Christ's return, to have that confident trust, not the uncertain expectation. So when we're hoping, we're hoping in God. And when he goes on to say, you know, that we are to seek at the end of that passage, to seek, to show hospitality, the word is used for the same word in the Greek for persecute. Although persecute means, and we'll say in just a minute, harassing one for their own beliefs, pursue is to run after and seek those who are strangers. So when was the last time you were seeking out strangers? to be hospitable, someone in Christ, someone you could reach for Christ, your neighbor, your someone at work, someone in your family, someone that you can pursue and run after, a friend. If it's priority, if it's commitment, if you hate what is evil and, and cling to what is good, then you're seeking. It's intentional. It's intentional. It's what we need to do with our marriages. It's intentional in the body of Christ. It's intentional in saying, I'm going to make this a priority in my life. When was the last time we were doing that? 
Why do we do that? Because God's love, because God loved us first. It says in 1 John 4, 19 through 21, John said it. He says, we love because he first loved us. So it's our priority to love with unconditional love, to be intentional, to pursue others, to run after because of when we do that, we're loving on God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother, whom he said he cannot see, he can see, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this affectionate love, this is how we demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. This is where we're different. This is where the world will see that we're different, is when we love people with unconditional love. Number two, we demonstrate the love of Christ by being daring, not detrimental. Daring, not detrimental. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. In this next passage, it's downright unnatural. In the, in the flesh, it's unnatural to think that you're going to bless someone who persecutes you. Now, I mean, Paul is saying, bless those who persecute you, okay? So you're going to, I'm, you're going to tell me I have to bless someone who harasses me, harasses me for my beliefs. I have to bless that person. Paul's only reiterating a command from what Jesus said in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus made that clear. And, and, and what happens too often is, but how do we handle this with God's people when people harassing us are giving us a hard time? How easy it is to just avoid people, these types of people. How easy it is to just turn away rather than turn the other cheek. It's so easy to do so. So while people are harassing us, how do we respond to that? Well, I had to look at what's going on in missions today. I looked up a Christianity Today article. It says the top 50 countries where it's hardest to be a Christian. Well, I'm just going to give you the top three. But this is from 260 million Christians all around the world suffering high to severe levels of persecution. The top three countries where it's very difficult to serve and you're being persecuted is one, North Korea. That's the first country that you're being persecuted for your faith. Number two, Afghanistan. Number three, Somalia. Even four and five is Libya and Pakistan. Pakistan. And then it goes on even further that it says for those who, um, those countries, the top 10 countries where Christians face the most violence, number one, Pakistan. Number two, Nigeria. Number three is Egypt. Four is Central African Republic. All of this being laid out, and then those who are being martyred. One, Nigeria, 1,350 people a year at best. Two, Central Africa, African Republic, 924. Three, Sri Lanka, 200. Even Colombia back in the 80s was a very difficult place to go and serve, and many were afraid to go there. It's still on the top 10 today at 16 people were killed last year for the faith. Again, all of this to say that we are being persecuted in some kind of form, but not to the level of those who are out there. But if God were to ask someone out there, which he is, to bless those who are persecuting them, I don't know about you, but if I were out there in a third world country, I'd have a very difficult time blessing them. But because they're so embedded in their walk with God, close to God, and, and just in love with Jesus, that they're able to bless those who persecute them. The word blessing means to ask for a bestowal of a special favor, 
especially calling down God's gracious power for them. And he's calling on them. So these folks, just like when Stephen, before he died and was stoned to death, he said, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. Or Jesus, who's sitting on the cross, said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's such a level of intimacy with God and the fellowship of their sufferings that they're able to bless those who persecute them. And we're always offended if someone just calls us out. We all are. We all struggle with that, but there are folks all around the world that are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted for the name of Christ. But nevertheless, we are called, and if we're being persecuted, we're at the level where we're at. But God is saying to bless those. Bless those who curse, who do not curse them. You know, bless and do not curse them. I mean, we have to be blessing them, not cursing them and reacting. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, meaning we have to bring forth unity. When we bless someone, it brings forth unity. But verse 16, it says, live in harmony with one another. The word is to think the same of one another, to think the same of one another. And see, what happens is the harmonizing, the thinking the same of one another comes forth unity. Not that you have to like the same things. You might not have to like what Eric and I like in music, but at least you can think like we do when it comes to Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we think the same of one another, that we're all in Christ and that we're to love one another well. Because what's detrimental in Christ is pride, arrogance, superiority. That's why he goes on to say, he says, do not be haughty. Don't think of yourself more superior than an expert, but associate with the lowly. See, what's being daring is being humble. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, love is devotion, but love hurts, and it hurts to be humble, but it brings unity. Never be wise in your own sight. Never think of yourself above someone else. Never think of your social status or your ethnicity or where social economic position or your intellect or your career. Never think of yourself more. Unity is come together when we bless those who curse us or persecute us. Look, even Peter got it. Peter said this. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So by blessing others who mistreat you, you will obtain a blessing. I mean, he's like, there's something in it for you, but you just got to hang on. You got to hang on and believe God has something for you as well. First Peter 3, 13 through 17, he even states, he goes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous, fervent, spirit fervent, for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, or be, sanctify Christ in your hearts, always being present to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do not do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that you are, you, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And when he makes that comment, if that should be God's will, meaning if he would pass away. 
These were Christians under the power and authority of Nero who's killing Christians just for being Christians. They were martyrs for Christ in the first century. But the idea is that going back is that when Christ is honored, when he's set in your heart and set in your mind, then you begin to understand and you think through it and saying, now I realize that what's I'm not on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. He's sitting there. I'm below. I'm humble. And when he's satisfied and set in your hearts and you surrender to Christ, then you have a reason to defend, meaning the word reason is apologetics. That's where we get that word, to reason, defend the faith. And when we defend the faith, we come knowing that we do it with gentleness and respect, meaning the words there are respect, but it's also the idea of reverence. It's humility and reverence, because if we understand who we are in Christ, and we set our hearts sanctified in Christ, then we know who we are. We won't be arrogant when we speak. We'll be humble with reverence to God. So we will then bless them, and God would be honored. That's why in all of this, when we do it, it puts the ball in their court. But if we respond and react and try to pursue them and persecute them or, or repay evil for evil, then it's on us. That's why we will obtain the blessing. Peter was saying that. So while we're being mistreated, persecuted, or cursed at, our action will define our attitude. And when our hearts are settled with an attitude of Christ, God can do amazing things through his people. But we have to respond in our hearts with gentleness and with respect, with fear and humility. And Christ who's honored with a good, clear conscience. Is that what God's calling us? Number three, we demonstrate the love of Christ by being redemptive, not retaliatory. Redemptive, not retaliatory. You see this even in this passage here going on in the last part of it. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, meaning there's no perfect record, you do all you can, as best as you can, to live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he goes on, he says this, it goes, it just, in, for in the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. For if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the natural response would be, I just want to retaliate if someone does wrong to me. The natural response is, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do wrong to him. That's the way we did growing up. You do wrong to me, I'm going to turn it around and do wrong to you, and it might get physical. But you know what? I, I kind of looked at a situation. I kind of Googled it yesterday. I said, what are some other tactics of revenge? You know, it could be like, it may not be the major ones where you get physical, it's physical abuse, or it's, um, it's verbal abuse, or physical, uh, physical assaults, or extramarital uh, disputes. It may not be so much that, but it could be subtle behaviors. And I looked it up, and I said, I wonder what could be a revenge tactic. And what came up was being passive-aggressive. That's a revenge tactic. You become, because you go around it. You don't hit it direct, you go around it. If you're passive aggressive, you may be revengeful in your heart, but you're just not exposing it as much. Or here's another one, sarcasm. Do you know sarcasm is actually one, I can be sarcastic at times, and I'm like, wow, that was kind of 
eye-opening. And it's like clever and shrewd and revengeful tactics is what they call it. It says sarcasm is a new form of revenge people tend to make in response to stupidity. Some say it as witty, while for some it is a symbol of smartness. In simple words, the word sarcasm conveys the use of irony to mock or contempt others without letting them realize. Husbands and wives, we're usually sarcastic toward one another, and it doesn't go well at all, at all. I can tell you it doesn't go well. In fact, it says it's thinly veiled attempt to disguise anger. Sarcasm comes from the Greek word sarkosmos, meaning the tearing of the flesh. The word flesh is sarkos. And so the intention behind sarcasm may be to be humorous or playful, but there is frequently an element of poorly disguised hostility or judgment. So if you're sarcastic and you tend to do that a lot, you're tearing at the flesh of someone and you don't even realize you're doing it. I don't realize I'm doing it where you're being sarcastic because it's kind of playful revenge. And I'm not calling anyone out because I'll be the first one in line again. But the whole idea is that when we're going through this, revenge can have its place. But we got to realize that Christ bought us with a price. A couple of years back, I have a story to share with you. And it's, in, it's actually tied up with verse 19. A couple of years back, about 15 or so, close to 15 now, I had an actual remodeling company. I was, after I got out of seminary, I started a remodeling company. I don't know, I know now why, but when I was doing it, I was like, what, what's this, I, Lord, I don't get this, but God had brought me through this process. And God blessed it because within 18 months, I had three, four $400,000 worth of work. And, and my accountant thought, like, why would you want to go back to the ministries? You're doing really well. I'm like, well, you know, God's called me to ministry. I'm going back. But I had this big project. I had two big projects going really well, working from 7 in the morning to 12 at night. Had a partner of mine. Had a couple of guys working with us. And we had this big project. It was about $75,000 in nature. And we got to about 50000 And it was with a Christian. And he and I, we, we got to a point where he had to meet with with me. It was a Thursday night. He says, I need to meet with you because um, I got to discuss with you what's going on. I'm running out of money. Now, a friend of mine who is a common friend had kind of warned me that it was coming. So we sat down, had dinner. He goes, I need you to keep working. I said, I, I can't keep working. I've got to pay my trades. My trade guys are coming in. I got to pay them. I don't have overhead. I'm not a millionaire. I don't have the money. He goes, well, I need you to keep working. I said, well, when are you getting this money? He goes, well, I'm working on it. What does that mean? He goes, well, I'm going to go to the bank. And how confident are you getting this loan? I'm not sure yet. Okay, well, I can't continue if you don't have the money. So this was Thursday. Friday came along. I went to my buddy who, when I was working with him, he had a little bit more contract experience. And he goes, Bruno, get out of that place. I said, what do you mean? He goes, go get your tools. Get out of, your, get out of that place. I said, why? He goes, I've seen this happen a couple of times to me. He's running out of money. He doesn't know when he'll get it. I said, okay, do you think that's the right thing? I prayed about it. I said, okay, we're going to do it. So I went down there on a Sunday night, thought he wouldn't be there, and the, and the owner was there. I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm working on it. I told you I have no money. God, he's getting really, really upset and angry. And I'm like, okay, well, he goes, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to get my tools. I realize you don't have money, and I can't continue. I've got other jobs i got to finish. So I said, I don't have tools on every site. i got to get my tools. Well, he became angry and started cursing at me and getting really angry. And I said, why are you getting angry? And he said, tell you what, you stop. And he called the cops on me. And I'm just sitting there. I waited for the cops because I was laughing. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I'm just sitting there kind of laughing. I wasn't, and so I called my buddy. Hey, you got to come down. He's calling the cops on us. Okay. He comes down. Cops are there. He's like, I know you're, I said, I'm not doing anything. I'm just getting my tools out. And the officers were really nice. I said, I'll leave. No problem. Got no hostility from me. And I'm laughing, walking out. Had a common friend who was there. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on with him, but we'll leave. 
And my friend was really upset, my buddy. I sat there and I just, the next day or a week later, I got a letter, a certified letter saying he was suing me for what? I don't know. Go ahead, sue me. I got no money. So he's ready to sue me. And every day I prayed a blessing on him. Every day. I'm not going to tell you, it it was hurtful, but I prayed a blessing. And I prayed for grace on his life. I said, Lord, I'm yours. He's attacking me. He's yours, but he's attacking me. Lord, you know my heart and what we're doing here. Oh, God, I lay before you. But be gracious to him, Lord. Don't hurt him. Lord, in the name of Jesus, take care of him. He's my brother. Just pray that you'll have grace on him. And I've just prayed every day. Because every day I recited this passage. Revenge is mine, says the Lord. I'm his. I'm bought with a price. God called me. If anybody comes to tax me, they're attacking God. So I said, okay, but every day I prayed that. And the Lord was doing some wondrous work. Because we went through a peacekeeper's process. The two pastors were the peacekeeper guys. I had my pastor. He had him and his wife. They came. We went to a meeting 10 months later after prayer. God kept giving me peace. That same wasn't tough, but he went through it. Get to the meeting. He comes up with one, one demand. He said, I know you bought those windows for $2,500 and you're charging me $5,000. So how do you know that I bought them for $2,500? He goes, I just know you did. Okay, I didn't show you the invoice. Okay, where's the invoice? I have it right here. $4,500. How much did I charge you? $5,000. What's my upkeep, I told you? 20% in the contract. I only charged you 10% to help you. You owe me $500. He goes, wow, I do. I said, I don't want it. You give it to the Lord. I don't want a penny of it. Make that an offering to God. My pastor was with me, was getting frustrated with him. I said, no, 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 it's all good, man. It's all good. God's got this. We walked away at peace. And what was it? I prayed a blessing on him every day. God gave me peace every day as I walked through it. But I kept reciting this passage. But it was another one I was reciting that I'm going to read to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25. For it says this, Peter goes, For this to you, this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who would judge us justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have not returned to the shepherd and an overseer of your souls. I committed to God every day. What a great, when I tell you I obtained blessing, I got the blessing of being intimate with God every day, resting and entrusting. Every day I said, Lord, just as Jesus, you entrusted it to the Father, I entrust this to to you, Lord. Every day. Because I didn't know how the matter was going to turn out. God did it. It was beautiful. Because when we're devoted to God individually, we make a powerful impact corporately and extend our reach globally. This is what happens. God does that work. When we make it a commitment and a priority to be devoted to God, daring, not not detrimental, but daring, and willing to be redemptive, 
God called me to be redemptive in this. And he calls every one of us to be redemptive. And it's hard. It hurts. It's not helpful at times. But God wants to do that work. He wants to heal. You know, this was his intention from the beginning. Jesus even himself spoke this. He said this. He said that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The unity of the Father and the Son. The unity of the body of Christ to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit brings forth unity that can help us reach globally. If we love God and love him through the unconditional love, we can reach others with the unconditional love of God. But we have to go through hard times, difficult times, and some, sometimes just downright unnatural things. But God, when he does a supernatural work, we can see a work that's being done for the glory of God. So what about you? What about me? Is love just an emotion or is it devotion? I want to encourage you today, and I want to give you just a couple of moments here with your heads bowed. Who's that person in your life that you need to present before the Lord? Who's that person in your life that you need to pray a blessing on them? Who's that person in your life that you can say, oh God, I pray for your grace on that person? Who is it? I want to give you just a couple of moments here. If you're out there on Facebook, I want to give you a couple of moments. Who is that person? I want to tell you right now, just name that person before the Lord. I'll give you just 10 seconds and just give it to God and say, Lord, here's the person I want you to bless. And they've mistreated you. I want you to bless them. Just want to give you a couple moments here. Lord, you have so many names that are coming at you right now through your people. And you've called us to unconditional love. To love people, to hate evil, to love what is good, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation. You've called us too to bless those who persecute us and even curse. We're not called to curse them, but to bless them. And God, you've called us to live in harmony. And you've called us not to repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. So today, we pray your blessing. We pray your blessing on those who have mistreated us. We pray your blessing on those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world who are being truly persecuted for the name of Christ. We pray a blessing on them and those who are persecuting them in Jesus' name. God, we pray for your blessing of unconditional love on us so that we can be the people of God around the world. Lord, we love you. We surrender our lives to you. And we ask that you would dismiss us with your love and your grace as we move forward for your kingdom's sake. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.